Hello, wonderful people. How's it going? Welcome back to Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam. And we're going to start, uh, start off today with the usual quick summary of uh, what we found out from the last stream. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, go ahead and put them in chat and we'll talk about them. Um, the chat's on a little bit of a delay so that I can really interact with you guys um, as quickly as I can. Unfortunately, the Wi-Fi isn't great. That's why there is a delay at all. But I've got it hopefully adjusted so that we can talk about things. Um, I love talking to you guys, so please feel free. Throw anything you'd like to talk about into the chat while I'm talking, and I will circle back to them as soon as I can. By the way, Rachel, uh, since you're my expert at this sort of thing, I need a... I need a voice for this character. Mr. Borgen owns one of the nasty shops in, in the Diagon Alley area. Go ahead and let me know what you think. Last stream, we started. Uh, Harry, basically, um, kind of uh, ostracized by the Dursleys all of his life, but now that they're uh, sort of wary of his magical abilities, they've struck... An even less, an even more uneasy kind of uh, cohabitation situation. There were a lot of big words in there that I didn't need to throw in. That's my bad. Um, basically, they're scared of Harry, but they want to try and suppress his magical abilities as much as possible. So they spend a lot of time locking him in his room, um, and in uh, the occasion at the very start of the book... Harry gets into a lot of trouble because he meets a character named Dobby, a little house elf, who comes to warn Harry not to go back to school. And when Harry says he can't promise he won't go back to school, in spite of Dobby's warnings uh, about some dangerous people making dangerous things happen at Hogwarts this year, uh, Harry can't promise that he won't go back. So Dobby tries to get him in big trouble and succeeds. Harry ends up locked in his room, and the Weasleys come and rescue him. And that's where we're at. We are at the Weasleys' house. It's called the Burrow. Um, Richard says, I am very good, excellent, how are you? I'm doing really well, I'm excited today. Um, and Rachel also asks, Mr. Who? Need to do some research, Mr. Borgen. He doesn't pop up very much. One of the owners of Borgen and Burks. Um, it's, uh, one of the nastier shops along the, in the, uh, Diagon Alley area. But, uh, yeah, so, Rachel, be thinking about that. And if you guys have anything else you want to discuss, go ahead and put it in chat. Otherwise, we're going to get started. Thank you all for coming today. Love talking to you. Love reading. Love doing the voices. Always a good time. All right. Chapter 4, At Flourish and Blots Life at the Burrow was as different as possible from life on Privet Drive. The Dursleys liked everything neat and ordered. The Weasley house burst with strange and unexpected things. Harry got a shock the first time he looked in the mirror over the kitchen mantelpiece, and it shouted, Tuck in your shirt, Scruffy! The ghoul in the attic howled and dropped pipes whenever he felt things were getting too quiet, and small explosions from Fred and George's bedroom were considered perfectly normal. What Harry found most unusual about life at Ron's, however, wasn't the talking mirror or the clanking ghoul. It was the fact that everybody there seemed to like him. 
Mrs. Weasley fussed over the state of his socks and tried to force him to eat fourth helpings at every meal. Mr. Weasley liked Harry to sit next to him at the dinner table, so he could bombard him with questions about life with muggles, asking him to explain things like plugs and the postal service. Oh, fascinating, he would say, as Harry talked him through using a telephone. It's ingenious, really. How many ways muggles have found of getting along without magic? Harry heard from Hogwarts one sunny morning about a week after he arrived at the borough. He and Ron went down to breakfast to find Mr. and Mrs. Weasley and Ginny already sitting at the kitchen table. The moment she saw Harry, Ginny accidentally knocked her porridge bowl to the floor with a loud clatter. Ginny seemed very prone to knocking things over whenever Harry entered a room. She dived under the table to retrieve the bowl and emerged with her face glowing like the setting sun. Pretending he hadn't noticed this, Harry sat down and took the toast Mrs. Weasley offered him. "'Your letters from school?' said Mr. Weasley, passing Harry and Ron identical envelopes of yellowish parchment, addressed in green ink. "'Dumbledore already knows you're here, Harry. Doesn't miss a trick, that man.' "'You two have got them, too,' he added, as Fred and George ambled in, still in their pajamas. For a few minutes there was a silence as they all read their letters. Harry's told him to catch up. Harry's told him to catch the Hogwarts Express as usual from King's Cross Station on September 1st. There was also a list of new books he'd be needing for the coming year. Second year students will require The Standard Book of Spells, Grade 2, by Miranda Goshawk. Break with a Banshee by Gilderoy Lockhart. Gadding with Ghouls by Gilderoy Lockhart. Holiday with Hags by Gilderoy Lockhart. Travels with Trolls by Gilderoy Lockhart. Voyages with Vampires by Gilderoy Lockhart. Wandering with Werewolves by Gilderoy Lockhart. Year with the Yeti by Gilderoy Lockhart. Fred, who had finished his own list, peered over at Harry's. What, you've been told to get all of Lockhart's books too? He said. The new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher must be a fan. I bet it's a witch. At this point, Fred caught his mother's eye and quickly busied himself with the marmalade. That lot won't come cheap, said George with a quick look at his parents. Lockhart's books are really expensive. Well, we'll manage, said Mrs. Weasley, but she looked worried. I expect we'll be able to pick up a lot of Ginny's things second hand. Oh, are you starting at Hogwarts this year? Harry asked Ginny. She nodded blushing to the roots of her flaming hair and put her elbow in the butter dish. Fortunately, no one saw this except Harry, because just then, Ron's elder brother Percy walked in. He was already dressed, his Hogwarts prefect badge pinned to his sweater vests. Good morning, all, said Percy briskly. Lovely day. He sat down in the only remaining chair, but leapt up again almost immediately, pulling from underneath him a molting gray feather duster, or at least that's what Harry thought it was, until he saw that it was breathing. Errol, said Ron, taking the limp owl from Percy and extracting a letter from under its wing. Finally! He's got him on his answer. I wrote to her saying we were all going to try and rescue you from the Dursleys. He carried Errol to a perch just inside the back door, and tried to stand him on it, but Errol flopped straight off again. So Ron laid him on the draining board instead, muttering, Pathetic. Then he ripped open Hermione's letter and read it aloud. 
Dear Ron and Harry, if you're there, hope everything went alright and that Harry's okay. He didn't do anything illegal to get him out, Ron, because that would get Harry into trouble too. Uh, I've been really worried, and if Harry's alright, will you please let me know at once, but perhaps it would be better if you used a different owl, because I think another delivery might finish your one off. I'm very busy with schoolwork, of course. What owl can she be? said Ryan in horror. We're on vacation! Um, uh, and we're going to London next Wednesday to buy my new books. Why don't we meet in Diagonale? Let me know what's happening as soon as you can. Love from Hermione. Well, that fits in nicely. We can go and get all your things done then too, said Mrs. Weasley, starting to clear the table. What are you all up to today? Harry, Ron, Fred and George were planning to go up to the hill to a small paddock the Weasleys owned. It was surrounded by trees that blocked it from the view of the village below, meaning that they could practice Quidditch there, as long as they didn't fly too high. They didn't use real Quidditch balls, which would be hard to explain if one had escaped and flown away over the village. Instead, they threw apples to one another. They took turns riding Harry's Nimbus 2000, which was easily the best broom. Ron's old shooting star was often outstripped by passing butterflies. Five minutes later, they were marching up the hill broomsticks over their shoulders. They had asked Percy if he wanted to join them, but he said he was too busy. Harry had only seen Percy at mealtimes so far. He stayed shut up in his room the rest of the time. I wish I knew what he was up to, said Fred, frowning. He's not himself. His exam results came in the day before you did. Twelve OWLs and he hardly gloated at all. Ordinary wizarding levels. George explained, seeing Harry's puzzled look. OWLs. Ordinary wizarding levels. Bill got twelve too. If we're not careful, we'll have another head boy in the family. I don't think I could stand the shame. Bill was the oldest, oldest Weasley brother. He and the next brother, Charlie, had already left Hogwarts. Harry had never met either of them, but he knew that Charlie was in Romania studying dragons, and Bill was in Egypt working for the Wizards Bank. Don't know how Mum and Dad are going to afford all our school stuff this year, said George after a while. Five sets of lockout books, and Jenny needs robes and a wand and everything. Harry said nothing. He felt a bit awkward. Stored in an underground vault at Gringotts in London was a small fortune that his parents had left him. Of course, it was only in the wizarding world that he had money. You couldn't use galleons, sickles, and nuts in muggle shops. He had never mentioned his Gringotts bank account to the Dursleys. He didn't think their horror of anything connected with magic would stretch to a large pile of gold. Mrs. Weasley woke them all early the following Wednesday. After a quick half-dozen bacon sandwiches each, they pulled on their coats, and Mrs. Weasley took a flower pot off the kitchen mantelpiece and peered inside. "'We're running low, Arthur,' she sighed. "'We'll have to buy some more today.' "'Ah, well, guests first. After you, Harry, dear. And she offered him the flower pot. Harry stared at them all, watching them. What... what am I supposed to do? He stammered. He's never travelled by flu powder, said Ron suddenly. Sorry, Harry, I forgot. Never, said Mr. Weasley. But how did you get to Diagon Alley to buy your school things last year? I went on the underground. Really? said Mr. Weasley eagerly. Were there escapators? 
Oh, exactly. Not now, Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley. Flu powder's a lot quicker, dear. But goodness me, if you've never used it before. I'll be all right, Mum, said Fred. Harry, watch us first. He took a pinch of glittering powder out of the flower pot, stepped up to the fire, and threw the powder into the flames. With a roar, the fire turned emerald green and rose higher than Fred, who stepped right into it, shouting, Diagon Alley! and vanished. You must speak clearly, dear, said Mrs. Weasley, as George dipped his hand into the flower pot, and be sure to get out at the right grate. The right what? said Harry nervously, as the fire roared and whipped George out of sight, too. Well, there are an awful lot of wizard fires to choose from, you know, but as long as you've spoken clearly. It'll be fine, Molly Dolphus, said Mr. Weasley, helping himself to flu powder, too. But, dear, what if he got lost? How would we ever explain to his aunt and uncle? They wouldn't mind, Harry reassured her. Dudley would think it's a brilliant joke if I got lost up a chimney. Don't worry about that. Well, all right. You go after Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley. Now, when you get into the fire, you say where you're going. And keep your elbows tucked in, Ron advised him. And your eyes shut, said Mrs. Weasley. The soot will... Don't fidget, said Ron, or you might well fall out of the wrong fireplace. But don't panic and get out too early. Wait until you see Fred and George. Trying hard to bear all this in mind, Harry took a pinch of flu powder and walked to the edge of the fire. He took a deep breath, scattered the powder into the flames, and stepped forward. The fire felt like a warm breeze. He opened his mouth and immediately swallowed a lot of hot ash. A diagon alley, <coughs> he coughed. It felt as though he were being sucked down a giant drain. He seemed to be spinning very fast. The roaring in his ears was deafening. He tried to keep his eyes open, but the whirl of green flames made him sick. Something hard knocked his elbow, and he tucked it in tightly, still spinning and spinning. Now it felt as though cold hands were slapping his face. Squinting through his glasses, he saw a blurred stream of fireplaces and snatched glimpses of the rooms beyond. His bacon sandwiches were churning inside him. He closed his eyes again, wishing it would stop, and then... He fell, face forward, onto cold stone, and felt the bridge of his glasses snap. Dizzy and bruised, covered in soot, he got gingerly to his feet, holding his broken glasses up to his eyes. He was quite alone, but where he was he had no idea. All he could tell was that he was standing in the stone fireplace of what looked like a large, dimly lit wizard's shop. But nothing in here was ever going to be on a Hogwarts school list. A glass case nearby held a withered hand on a cushion, a blood-stained pack of cards, and a staring glass eye. Evil-looking masks stared down from the wall. An assortment of human bones lay upon the counter, and rusty, spiked instruments hung from the ceilings. Even worse... The dark, narrow street Harry could see through the dusty shop window was definitely not Diagon Alley. The sooner he got out of here, the better. Nose still stinging from where it had hit the hearth, Harry made his way swiftly and silently toward the door. But before he'd got halfway toward it, two people appeared from the other side of the glass, and one of them was the very last person Harry wanted to meet when he was lost, covered in soot and wearing broken glasses. Draco Malfoy. Harry looked quickly around and spotted a large black cabinet to his left. 
He shot inside it and pulled the doors closed, leaving a small crack to peer through. Seconds later, a bell clanged, and Malfoy stepped into the shop. The man who followed could only be Draco's father. He had the same pale pointed face and identical cold gray eyes. Mr. Malfoy crossed the shop, looking lazily at the items on display, and rang a bell on the counter before turning to his son and saying, Touch nothing, Draco. Malfoy, who had reached for the glass eye, said, I thought you were going to buy me a present. I said I'd buy you a racing broom, said his father, drumming his fingers on the counter. What's the good of that if I'm not on the house team? said Malfoy, looking sulky and bad-tempered. Harry Potter got a Nimbus 2000 last year. Special permission from Dumbledore so he could play from play for Gryffindor. He's not even that good just because he's famous. Famous for having a stupid scar on his forehead. Malfoy bent down to examine a shelf full of skulls. Everyone thinks he's so smart. Wonderful Potter with his scar and his broomstick. You have told me this at least a half dozen times already, said Mr. Malfoy, with a quelling look at his son. And I would remind you that it is not prudent to appear less than fond of Harry Potter, not when I'm... Not when most of our kind regard him as a sort of hero who made the Dark Lord disappear. Ah, Mr. Borgin. A stooping man had appeared behind the counter, smoothing his greasy black hair from his face. Mr. Malfoy, what a pleasure to see you, said Mr. Borgin as he... <laughs> in a voice as oily as his hair. Delighted. And young Master Malfoy, too. Charmed. How may I be of assistance? I must show you just in today and very reasonably priced. I'm not buying today, Mr. Borgin, but selling, said Mr. Malfoy. Selling? The smile faded slightly from Mr. Borgin's face. I have a few... Mm, items at home that might embarrass me if the Ministry were to call. Mr. Borgin fixed a pair of pince-nez to his nose and looked down the list. The Ministry wouldn't presume to trouble you, sir, surely? Mr. Malfoy's lip curled. I have not been visited yet. The name Malfoy still commands a certain respect. Yet the Ministry grows ever more meddlesome. There are rumours about a new Muggle Protection Act. No doubt that flea-bitten, muggle-loving fool Arthur Weasley is behind it. Harry felt a hot surge of anger. And as you see, certain of these potions might make it appear. Mm, I understand, sir, of course, said Mr. Bergen. Let me see. Can I have that? interrupted Draco pointing at the withered hand on its cushion. Oh, the hand of glory, said Mr. Borkin, abandoning Mr. Malfoy's list and scurrying over to Draco. You insert a candle, and it gives light only to the holder. Best friend of thieves and plunderers, your son has fine taste, sir. I hope my son will amount to more than a thief or a plunderer, Borgin, said Mr. Malfoy coldly. Mr. Borgin said quickly, No offence, sir, I did not mean any offence. Though if his grades don't pick up, 
said Mr. Malfoy, more coldly still, that may indeed be all he's fit for. It's not my fault, retorted Draco. The teachers all have favorites, that Hermione Granger. I, I thought it would have been a shame that a girl of no wizarding family beat you in every exam, snapped Mr. Malfoy. Ha, said Harry under his breath, pleased to see Draco looking both abashed and angry. It's the same all over, said Mr. Borgen, in his oily voice. Wizard blood is counting for less everywhere. Not with me, said Mr. Malfoy, his long nostrils flaring. No, sir, nor with me, sir, said Mr. Borgen, with a deep bow. In that case, perhaps we can return to my list, said Mr. Malfoy shortly. I'm in something of a hurry, Borgen. I have important business elsewhere today. They started to haggle. Harry watched nervously as Draco drew nearer and nearer to his hiding place, examining the objects for sale. Draco paused to examine a long coil of hangman's rope to read, smirking, to read, smirking, the card propped on a magnificent necklace of opals. Caution, do not touch. Cursed. Has claimed the lives of nineteen muggle owners to date. Draco turned away and saw the cabinet right in front of him. He walked forward. He stretched out his hand for the handle. Done, said Mr. Malfoy, at the counter. Come, Draco. Harry wiped his forehead on his sleeve as Draco turned away. Good day to you, Mr. Borgin. I'll expect you at the manor tomorrow to pick up the goods. The moment the door had closed, Mr. Borgin dropped his oily manner. Yes, good day to yourself, Mr. Malfoy, and if the stories are true, you haven't sold me half of what's hidden in your manner. <clears throat> Muttering darkly, Mr. Borgin disappeared into a back room. Harry waited for a moment, in case he came back, then, quietly as he could, slipped out of the cabinet, past the glass cases, and out of the shop door. Clutching his broken glasses to his face, Harry stared around. He had emerged into a dingy alleyway that seemed to be made up entirely of shops devoted to the dark arts. The one he'd just left, Borgen and Burke's, looked like the largest, but opposite was a nasty window display of shrunken heads, and two doors down, a large cage was alive with gigantic black spiders. Two shabby-looking wizards were watching him from the shadow of a doorway, muttering to each other. Feeling jumpy, Harry set off, trying to hold his glasses on straight and hoping against hope he'd be able to find a way out of here. An old wooden street sign hanging over a shop selling poisonous candles told him he was in Nocturne Alley. This didn't help, as Harry had never heard of such a place. He supposed he hadn't spoken clearly enough through his mouthful of ashes back in the Weasley's fire. Trying to stay calm, he wondered what to do. Not lost, are you, my dear? said a voice in his ear, making him jump. An aged witch stood in front of him, holding a tray of what looked horribly like whole human fingernails. She leered at him, showing mossy teeth. Harry backed away. I'm fine, thanks, he said. I'm just... Harry! What do you think you're doing down here? Harry's heart leapt. So did the witch. A load of fingernails cascaded down over her feet, and she cursed at the massive form of Hagrid, the Hogwarts gamekeeper, came striding toward them, 
beetle-black eyes flashing over his great bis bristling beard. Oh, Hagrid! Harry croaked in relief. I was lost! The flu powder! Hagrid seized Harry by the scruff of the neck and pulled him away from the witch, knocking the tray right out of her hands. Her shrieks followed them all the way down the twisting alleyway into the bright sunlight. Harry saw a familiar snow-white marble building in the distance, Gringotts Bank. Hagrid had steered him right into Diagon Alley. You're a mess, said Hagrid gruffly, brushing soot off of Harry so forcefully he nearly knocked him into a barrel of dragon dung outside an apothecary. Caught in her own nocturne alley. I don't know, dodgy place, Harry. Don't want to see you down there. I realize that, said Harry, ducking as Hagrid made to brush him off again. I told you I was lost. What were you doing down there anyway? I was looking for a flesh-eating slug repellent, growled Hagrid. They're ruining the school cabbages. You're not on your own. I'm staying with the Weasleys, but we got separated, Harry explained. I've got to go and find them. They set off together down the street. How come you never wrote back to me? said Hagrid as Harry jogged alongside him. He had to take three steps to every stride of Hagrid's enormous boots. Harry explained all about Dobby and the Dursleys. Mm, lousy muggles, growled Hagrid. If we'd have known. Harry, Harry, over here. Harry looked up and saw Hermione Granger standing at the top of the white flight of steps to Gringotts. She ran down to meet them, her bushy brown hair flying behind her. Oh, what happened to your glasses? Hello, Hagrid. Oh, it's wonderful to see you two again. Are you coming into Gringotts, Harry? As soon as I found the Weasleys. Said Harry. You won't have long to wait, Hagrid said with a grin. Harry and Hermione looked around. Sprinting up the crowded street were Ron, Fred, George, Percy, and Mr. Weasley. Oh, Harry, said Mr. Weasley, panting. We hoped you'd only gone one or two grates too far. He mopped his glistening bald patch. Molly's frantic. She's coming now. Where did you come out? Ron asked. Nocturne Alley, said Hagrid grimly. Excellent, said Fred and George together. We, we've never been allowed in, said Ron enviously. I should ruddy well think not, growled Hagrid. Mrs. Weasley now came galloping into view, her handbag swinging wildly in one hand, Ginny just clinging to the other. Oh, Harry, oh my dear, you could have been anywhere. Gasping for breath, she pulled a large clothes brush out of her bag and began sweeping off the soot Hagrid hadn't managed to beat away. Mr. Weasley took Harry's glasses, gave them a tap of his wand, and returned them good as new. Oh, gotta be off, said Hagrid, who was having his hand wrung by Mrs. Weasley. Nocturnally, if you hadn't found him, Hagrid, I don't know. I'll see you at Hogwarts. And he strode away, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the packed street. Guess who I saw in Borgen and Burke's? Harry asked Ron and Hermione, as they climbed the Gringotts steps. Malfoy and his father. Did Lucius Malfoy buy anything? said Mr. Weasley sharply behind them. No, he was selling... So he's worried, said Mr. Weasley with a grim satisfaction. Oh, I'd love to get Lucius Malfoy for something. You be careful, Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley sharply as they were bowed into the bank by a goblin at the door. That family's trouble. You don't go biting off more than you can chew. 
Oh, you don't think I'm a match for Lucius Malfoy? Said Mr. Weasley indignantly. But he was distracted almost at once by the sight of Hermione's parents, who were standing nervously at the counter that ran all along the great marble hall, waiting for Hermione to introduce them. Oh, but you're muggles, said Mr. Weasley delightedly. Oh, we must have a drink. What's that you've got there? Oh, you're changing muggle money. Molly, look! He pointed excitedly at the ten-pound notes in Mr. Granger's hand. I'll meet you back here, Ron said to Hermione as the Weasleys and Harry were led off to their underground vaults by another Gringotts goblin. The vaults were reached by means of a small goblin-driven cart that sped along miniature train tracks through the bank's underground vaults. Harry enjoyed the breakneck journey down to the Weasleys' vault, but felt dreadful, far worse than he had in Nocturne Alley, when it had opened. There was a very small pile of silver sickles inside, and just one gold galleon. Mrs. Weasley felt right into the corners before sweeping the whole lot into her bag. Harry felt even worse when they reached his vault. He tried to block the contents from view as he hastily shoved handfuls of coins into a leather bag. Welcome back, Rachel. I saw your message a little bit ago. Sorry. Back outside on the marble stone... Mm. Not the stone steps. That's what J.K. Rowling writes constantly near Hogwarts. The stone steps. The ground. The stone steps of the castle. Back outside on the marble steps, they all separated. Percy muttered vaguely about needing a new quill. Fred and George had spotted their friend from Hogwarts, Lee Jordan. Mrs. Weasley and Ginny were going to a second-hand robe shop. Mr. Weasley was insisting on taking the Grangers off to the Leaky Cauldron for a drink. All right, we'll all meet at Flourish and Blotts in an hour to buy your school books, said Mrs. Weasley, setting off with Ginny. And not one step down Nocturne Alley, she shouted at the twins' retreating backs. Harry, Ron, and Hermione strolled off along the winding, cobbled street. The bag of gold, silver, and bronze jingling cheerfully in Harry's pocket was clamoring to be spent, so he bought three large strawberry and peanut butter ice creams, which they slurped happily as they wandered up the alley, examining the fascinating shop windows. Ron gazed longingly at a full set of Chudley cannon robes in the windows of quality Quidditch supplies, until Hermione dragged them off to buy ink and parchment next door. In Gamble and Jape's wizarding joke shop, they met Fred, George, and Lee Jordan, who were stocking up on Mr. Filibuster's fabulous wet-start, no-heat fireworks. And in a tiny junk shop full of broken wands, lopsided brass scales, and old cloaks covered in potion stains, they found Percy, deeply immersed in a small and deeply boring book called Prefects Who Gained Power. A study of Hogwarts prefix and the later careers, Ron read aloud off the back cover. That sounds fascinating. Go away, Percy snapped. Of course, he's very ambitious, Percy. Got it all planned out. He wants to be Minister of Magic, Ron told Harry and Hermione in an undertone as they left Percy to it. An hour later, they headed for Flourish and Blotts. They were by no means the only ones making their way to the bookshop. As they approached it, they saw to their surprise a large crowd jostling outside the doors, trying to get in. The reason for this was proclaimed by a large banner stretching across the upper windows. Gilderoy Lockhart will be signing copies of his autobiography, Magical Me, today, 12.30pm to 4.30pm. We can actually meet him! Hermione squealed. I mean, he's almost written the whole book list! 
The crowd seemed to be made up of mostly witches around Mrs. Weasley's age. A harassed-looking wizard stood by the door, saying, Calmly, please, ladies. Don't push there. Mind the books now. Harry, Ron, and Hermione squeezed inside. A long line wound right to the back of the shop, where Gilderoy Lockhart was signing his books. They each grabbed a copy of The Standard Book of Spells, Grade 2, and sneaked up the line to where the rest of the Weasleys were standing with Mr. and Mrs. Granger. Oh, good! There you are, said Mrs. Weasley. She sounded breathless and kept patting her hair. Oh, we'll be able to see him in a minute. Gilderoy Lockhart came slowly into view, seated at a table surrounded by large pictures of his own face, all winking and flashing dazzlingly white teeth at the crowd. The real Lockhart was wearing robes of forget-me-not blue that exactly matched his eyes. His pointed wizard's hat was set at a jaunty angle on his wavy hair. A short, irritable-looking man was dancing around taking photographs with a large black camera that emitted puffs of purple smoke with every blinding flash. Get out of the way there! He snarled at Ron, moving back to get a better shot. This is for the Daily Prophet! Big deal, said Ron, rubbing his foot where the photographer had stepped on it. Gilderoy Lockhart heard him. He looked up. He saw Ron, and then he saw Harry. He stared. Then he leapt to his feet and positively shouted, It can't be Harry Potter! The crowd parted, whispering excitedly. Lockhart dived forward, seizing Harry's arm pulled him to the front. The crowd burst into applause. Harry's face burned as Lockhart shook his hand for the photographer, who was clicking away madly, wafting thick smoke over the Weasleys. Nice big smile, Harry, said Lockhart through his own gleaming teeth. Together you and I are worth the front page. When he finally let go of Harry's hand, Harry could hardly feel his fingers. He tried to sidle back over to the Weasleys, but Lockhart threw an arm around his shoulders and clamped him tightly to his side. Ladies and gentlemen, said Shy- he said loudly, waving for quiet. What an extraordinary moment this is. The perfect moment for me to make a little announcement I've been sitting on for quite some time. When young Harry Potter here stepped into Flourish and Blots today, he only wanted to buy my autobiography, which I shall be happy to present him now, free of charge. The crowd applauded again. He had no idea! Lockhart continued, giving Harry a little shake that made his glasses slip to the end of his nose. But he would be shortly getting much, much more than my book, Magical Me. He and his schoolmates will, in fact, be getting the real Magical Me. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I have the great pleasure and pride in announcing that this September I will be taking up the post of Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The crowd cheered and clapped, and Harry found himself being presented with the entire works of Gilderoy Lockhart. Staggering slightly under their weight, he managed to make his way out of the limelight to the edge of the room, where Ginny was standing next to her new cauldron. You can have these, Harry mumbled to her, tipping the books into her cauldron. I'll buy my own. I'll bet you love that, didn't you, Potter? Said a voice Harry had no trouble recognizing. He straightened up and found himself face to face with Draco Malfoy, who was wearing his usual sneer. Famous Harry Potter, said Malfoy. Can't even go to a bookshop without making the front page. You leave him alone, you didn't want any of that, said Ginny. 
It was the first time she had spoken in front of Harry. She was glaring at Malfoy. Mm, Potter, you've got yourself a girlfriend, drawled Malfoy. Ginny went scarlet as Ron and Hermione fought their way over, both clutching stacks of Lockhart books. Oh, it's you, said Ron, looking at Malfoy as though he were something unpleasant on the sole of his shoe. Bet you're surprised to see Harry here, eh? Not as surprised as I am to see you in a shop, Weasley, retorted Malfoy. I suppose your parents will have to go hungry for a month to pay for all those. Ron went as red as Ginny. He dropped his books into the cauldron, too, and started toward Malfoy, but Harry and Hermione grabbed the back of his jacket. Ron, said Mr. Weasley, struggling over with Fred and George. What's he doing? It's too crowded in here. Let's go outside. Well, 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 Arthur Weasley. It was Mr. Malfoy. He stood with his hand on Draco's shoulder, sneering in just the same way. Lucius, said Mr. Weasley, nodding coldly. Busy time at the ministry, I hear, said Mr. Malfoy. All those raids. I hope they're paying you overtime. He reached into Ginny's cauldron and extracted from amongst the glossy Lockhart books a very old, very battered copy of Beginner's Guide to Transfiguration. Obviously not, Mr. Malfoy said. Dear me, what's the use of being a disgrace to the name of the wizard if they don't even pay you well for it? Mr. Weasley flushed darker than either Ron or Ginny. We've got a very different idea of what disgraces the name of a wizard, Malfoy. Clearly, said Mr. Malfoy, his pale eyes straying to Mr. and Mrs. Granger, who were watching apprehensively. The company you keep, Weasley. And I thought your family could sink no lower. There was a thud of metal as Ginny's cauldron went flying. Mr. Weasley had thrown himself at Mr. Malfoy, knocking him backward into a bookshelf. Dozens of heavy spell books came thundering down on their heads. There was a yell of, Get him, Dud! from Fred or George. Mistress Weasley, Mrs. Weasley, was shrieking, No, Arthur, no! The crowd stampeded backward, knocking more shelves over. Help him, please, please, cried the assistant, and then, louder than all, Break it up there, gents, break it up! Hagrid was wading toward them through the sea of books. In an instant, he had pulled Mr. Weasley and Mr. Malfoy apart. Mr. Weasley had a cut lip, and Mr. Malfoy had been hit in the eye by an encyclopedia of toadstools. He was still holding Ginny's old transfiguration book. He thrust it at her, his eyes glittering with malice. Here, girl, take your book. It's the best your father can give you. Pulling himself out of Hagrid's grip, he beckoned to Draco and swept from the shop. You should have ignored him, Arthur, said Hagrid, almost lifting Mr. Weasley off his feet and straightening his robes. Rotten to the core, whole family. Everyone knows that. No Malfoy's worth listening to. Bad blood, that's what it is. Come on now, let's get out of here. The assistant looked as though he wanted to stop them leaving. But he barely came up to Hagrid's waist and seemed to think better of it. They hurried up the street, the Grangers shaking with fright and Mrs. Weasley beside herself with fury. A fine example for you to set for the children, brawling in public. What Gilderoy Lockhart must have thought? 
He was pleased, said Fred. Didn't you hear him as we were leaving? He was asking that bloke from the Daily Prophet if he'd be able to work the fight into his report. Said it was all publicity. But it was a subdued group that headed back to the fireside at the Leaky Cauldron, where Harry the Weasleys and all of their shopping would be travelling back to the burrow, using flu powder. They said goodbye to the Grangers, who were leaving the pub for the Muggle Street on the other side. Mr. Weasley started to ask how bus stops worked, but quickly stopped at the look on Mrs. Weasley's face. Harry took off his glasses and put them safely in his pocket, before helping himself to flu powder. It definitely wasn't his favorite way to travel. And that is the end of chapter four. Back to the library with us. Thank you guys for joining me so much. If anybody's tuning in late, I'm Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. We're reading Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and having a great time. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, I'll probably yammer at you for a second before I take my break, but... uh, I'm going to take a break. It's true. And then when we come back, um, I'm going to talk about anything that pops up in the chat. Any questions about what's going on? Any comments on what we've seen? Any concerns about anybody new we may have met? Um, So feel free to put those in chat as soon as you can think of what your question is, and we'll talk about them immediately. I'm going to do my customary yammer for a second, though. Um... We're back at this point where Harry is uh, Harry's trying to deal with Ron and the fact that Ron is ashamed of not having any money. You'll notice it never actually causes Ron and Harry any tension in their relationship. Um, you know, there's nothing that Harry wants from Ron that that uh, Ron can't pay for. You know, nothing nothing Harry insists that they go off and buy together or or anything like that. But um, that doesn't mean that Ron doesn't feel ashamed of it. It's a tough situation to be in, but it does emphasize the good quality of friends. They don't judge you for what you don't have or what you can't get. They judge you by your character. And Ron, as I think we discovered at the end of uh, the last book, excellent character. So, just a quick reminder to you guys to uh, be good friends and look for good friends. I think we talked about that last uh, stream. I think we pretty much covered it there. But uh, I'm going to take my quick break. When I come back, I'm going to do any discussion that you guys have for me in the chat and a quick summary of what just happened in case anybody jumps in late. And then we're going to go to the next chapter. We're reading Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. We're up at the start of the book. Um, thank you all for joining me. Let me fix this really quick because we are watching uh chapter five, not chapter four anymore. We just cleared chapter four. All right, if while I'm talking, you guys have anything you want to talk about, go ahead and put it in the chat. We'll talk about it. Um, and that's not limited just to the book either. I would like to uh, you know, if you guys want to discuss the the art that pops up in case you see something you really like or something that drives you nuts, go ahead and let me know. This is free-range commentary is what this is. Ignore my loud water bottle noises. So, for anybody tuning in late, 
last chapter, here's what happened. We picked up with Harry. He's staying with the Weasleys at their home, the burrow, and they all go off to get their school supplies. Harry ends up in the wrong spot. Um, they travel by this thing called the flu network, which is basically you take this glittery powder and you chuck it in the fire and say where you want to go, and you walk in the fire and come out somebody else's fireplace. That's spooky as heck. Um, by the way, I've seen a lot of great fan theories about the uh, about a benevolent wizard who liked to interact with muggles and uh, would bring gifts through the flu network once a year. Middle of winter kind of, kind of uh, celebration. Maybe we'll cover that a different time. I don't want to go too far into it. I'll let you interpret that how you um, But uh, Harry ends up in the wrong spot. He ends up in a shop called Borgen and Burks where they sell, looks like... Stuff for dark arts. Suspicious. Even more suspicious, guess who walks in while Harry hides in a cupboard? Lucius Malfoy and his son, Harry's nemesis, Draco Malfoy. They're there. Lucius Malfoy is there to, um, looks like, sell some, some spooky things that he might have around his house. Because it would appear that the Department of... Um, I believe it's Muggle Protection. There's a, there's a Muggle Protection Act, but uh, um, basically the the part of the government, the wizarding government that Arthur Weasley works for. That's the Weasley dad. Uh, they might be closing in on some of Malfoy's unsavory business. And they meet back up again. Uh, they find out that this guy, Gilderoy Lockhart, who's Books they have to buy for the school year. Surprise, he is going to be the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. If you guys remember the previous Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Professor Quirrell, uh, he had some... Was a little sick in the head, maybe? Sick in the back of the head? He had Voldemort on the back of his head. Hid Voldemort underneath the turban, and um, did Voldemort's bidding whenever Voldemort asked. Creepy. I can imagine I wouldn't get much sleep like that, but... He's out. Gilderoy Lockhart's in. Seems like a flashy sort of guy. Then there's a big, big kerfuffle, big scuffle between Arthur Weasley and Lucius Malfoy. At the end, everything calms down. Uh, Ginny gets her books back from Mal from uh, Lucius Malfoy. Everything's all is well. Chapter 5, The Whomping Willow. The end of the summer vacation came too quickly for Harry's liking. He was looking forward to getting back to Hogwarts, but his month at the borough had been the happiest of his life. It was difficult not to feel jealous of Ron when he thought of the Dursleys and the sort of welcome he could expect next time he turned up on Privet Drive. On their last evening, Mrs. Weasley conjured up a sumptuous dinner that included all of Harry's favorite things ending with a mouth-watering treacle pudding. Fred and George rounded off the evening with a display of filibuster fireworks. They filled the kitchen with red and blue stars that bounced from ceiling to wall for at least half an hour. Then it was time for a last mug of hot chocolate and bed. It took a long while to get started the next morning. They were up at dawn, but somehow they still seemed to have a great deal of work to do. Mrs. Weasley dashed about in a bad mood, looking for spare socks and quills. People kept colliding on the stairs, 
half-dressed with bits of toast in their hands. And Mr. Weasley nearly broke his neck, tripping over a stray chicken. Harry couldn't see how eight people, six large trunks, two owls, and a rat were going to fit into one small Ford Anglia. He had reckoned, of course, without the special features that Mr. Weasley had added. Not a word to Molly, he whispered to Harry as he opened the trunk and showed them how it had been magically expanded so that the luggage fitted easily. When at last they were all in the car, Mrs. Weasley glanced into the back seat, where Harry, Ron, Fred, George, and Percy were all sitting comfortably side by side, and said, Muggles do know a bit more than we give them credit for, don't they? She said as Jenny got into the front seat, which had been stretched so that it resembled a park bench. I mean, you'd never know that it was this roomy from the outside, would you? Mr. Weasley started up the engine, and they trundled out of the yard. Harry turning back for a last look at the house. He barely had time to wonder when he'd see it again when they were back. George had forgotten his box of filibuster fireworks. Five minutes after that, they skidded to a halt in the yard so that Fred could run in for his broomstick. They had almost reached the highway when Ginny shrieked that she'd left her diary. By the time she clambered back into the car, they were running very late, and tempers were running high. Mr. Weasley checked his watch and then glanced at his wife. Molly, dear. No, Arthur. Nobody would see. This little button here is an invisibility booster, I added. That would get us up in the air. Then we'd fly above the clouds. We'd be there in ten minutes. No one would be any the wiser. I said no, Arthur. Not in broad daylight. They reached King's Cross Station at quarter to eleven. Mr. Weasley dashed across the road to get the trolleys for their trunks, and they all hurried into the station. Harry had caught the Hogwarts Express the previous year. The tricky part was getting onto Platform 9 and 3 quarters, which wasn't visible to the Muggle eye. What you had to do was walk through the solid barrier dividing Platforms 9 and 10. It didn't hurt, but it had to be done carefully, so that none of the Muggles noticed you vanishing. Percy first, said Mrs. Weasley, looking nervously at the clock overhead, which showed they only had five minutes to disappear casually through the barrier. Percy strode briskly forward and vanished. Mr. Weasley went next. Fred and George followed. I'm going to take Ginny. You two come right after us, Mrs. Weasley told Harry and Ron, grabbing Ginny's hand and setting off. In the blink of an eye, they were gone. Let's go together. We've only got a minute, Ron said to Harry. Harry made sure Hedwig's cage was safely wedged on top of his trunk and wheeled his trolley around to face the barrier. He felt perfectly confident. This wasn't nearly as uncomfortable as using flu powder. Both of them bent low over the handles of their trolleys and walked purposely toward the barrier, gathering speed. A few feet from it, they broke into a run, and... Both trolleys hit the barrier and bounced backward. Ron's trunk fell off with a loud thump. Harry was knocked off his feet, and Hedwig's cage bounced onto the shiny floor, and she rolled away, shrieking indignantly. People all around them stared, and a guard nearby yelled, What in the blazes do you think you're doing? I lost control of the trolley, Harry gasped, clutching his ribs as he got up. Ron ran to get Hedwig, who was causing such a scene that a lot of people were muttering nearby about cruelty to animals. Why can't we get through? Harry hissed to Ron. Don't know. Ron looked around wildly. A dozen curious people were still watching them. 
We're going to miss the train, Brian whispered. I don't understand why the gateway sealed itself. Harry looked up at the giant clock with a sickening feeling in the pit of his stomach. Ten seconds. Nine seconds. He wheeled his trolley forward cautiously until it was right against the barrier and pushed with all his might. The metal remained solid. Three seconds. Two seconds. One second. It's gone, said Ron, sounding stunned. The train's left. What if Mum and Dad can't get back through to us? Have you got any muggle money? Harry gave a hollow laugh. The Dursleys haven't given me pocket money for about six years. Ron pressed his ear to the cold barrier. I can't hear a thing, he said tensely. What are we going to do? I don't know how long it'll take for Mum and Dad to get back to us. They looked around. People were still watching them, mainly because of Hedwig's continued screeches. I think we'd better go and wait by the car, said Harry. We're attracting too much attention. Harry, said Ron, his eyes gleaming. The car. What about it? We can fly the car to Hogwarts. But I thought... We're stuck, right? Oh, we've got to get to school, haven't we? And even underage wizards are allowed to use magic if it's like a real emergency. Section 19 or something of the restriction thingy. But your mum and dad, said Harry, pushing against the barrier again, in the vain hope that it would give way. How will they get home? They don't need the car, said Ryan impatiently. They know how to operate. You know, just vanish, reappear at home. They only bother with flu powder in the car because we're all underage and we're not allowed to operate yet. Harry's feeling of panic turned suddenly to excitement. Can you fly it? No problem, said Ron, wheeling his trolley around to face the exit. Come on, let's go. If we hurry, we'll be able to follow the Hogwarts Express. And they marched off through the crowd of curious muggles, out of the station and back to the side of the road, where the old Ford Anglia was parked. Ron unlocked the cavernous trunk with a series of taps from his wand. They heaved their luggage back in, put Hedwig on the back seat and got into the front. Just, um, check that no one's watching, said Ron, starting the ignition with another tap of his wand. Harry stuck his head out of the window. Traffic was rumbling along the main road ahead, but their street was empty. Okay, he said. Ron pressed a tiny silver button on the dashboard. The car around them vanished, and so did they. Harry could feel the seat vibrating beneath him, hear the engine, feel his hands on his knees and his glasses on his nose. But for all he could see, he had become a pair of eyeballs, floating a few feet above the ground in a dingy street full of parked cars. Let's go, said Ron's voice from his right. And the ground and the dirty buildings on either side fell away, dropping out of sight as the car rose in seconds the whole of London lying smoky and glittering below them. And there was a popping noise in the car. Harry and Ron reappeared. Uh-oh, said Ron, jabbing at the invisibility booster. It's faulty. Both of them pummeled it. The car vanished, then it flickered back again. Hold on, Ron yelled, and he slammed his foot on the accelerator. They shot straight into the low, woolly clouds, and everything turned dull and foggy. Now what? said Harry. 
blinking at the solid mass of cloud pressing in on them from all sides. We need to see the train to know what direction to go in, said Ron. We'll dip back down again, quickly. They dropped back beneath the clouds and twisted around in their seats, squinting at the ground. I can see it, Harry yelled. Right ahead, there. The Hogwarts Express was streaking along below them like a scarlet snake. Due north, said Ron, checking the compass on the dashboard. Okay, we'll just have to check on it every half hour or so. Hold on. And they shot up through the clouds. A minute later, they burst into the sunlight. It was a different world. The wheels of the car skimmed the sea of fluffy cloud, the sky a bright, endless blue under the blinding white sun. All we've got to worry about now are airplanes, said Ron. They looked at each other and started to laugh. For a long time, they couldn't stop. It was as though they had been plunged into a fabulous dream. This, thought Harry, was surely the only way to travel. Past swirls and turrets of snowy cloud, and a car full of hot, bright sunlight, with a fat pack of toffees in the glove compartment and the prospect of seeing Fred and George's jealous faces when they landed smoothly and spectacularly on the sweeping lawn in front of Hogwarts Castle. They made regular checks on the train as they flew further and further north. Each dip beneath the clouds showed them a different view. London was soon far behind them, replaced by neat green fields that gave way, in turn, to wide purplish moors, a great city alive with cars like multicolored ants, villages with tiny toy churches. Several uneventful hours later, however, Harry had to admit that some of the fun was wearing off. The toffees had made them extremely thirsty, and they had nothing to drink. He and Ron had pulled off their sweaters, but Harry's t-shirt was still sticking to the back of his seat, and his glasses kept sliding down to the end of his sweaty nose. He had stopped noticing the fantastic cloud shapes now, and was thinking longingly of the train miles below, where you could buy ice-cold pumpkin juice from a trolley pushed by a plump witch. Why hadn't they been able to get onto platform nine and three quarters? It can't be much farther, can it? croaked Ron, hours later still, as the sun started to sink into their floor of cloud, standing at a deep pink, darker beneath the canopy of clouds. Ron put his foot on the accelerator and drove them upward again, but as he did so, the engine began to whine. Harry and Ron exchanged nervous glances. It's uh, probably just tired, said Ron. It's never been this far before. And they both pretended not to notice the whining growing louder and louder as the sky became steadily darker. Stars were blossoming in the blackness. Harry pulled his sweater back on, trying to ignore the way the windshield wipers were now waving feebly, as though in protest. Not far, said Ron. More to the car than to Harry. Not far now. And he patted the dashboard nervously. When they flew back beneath the clouds a little while later, they had to squint through the darkness for a landmark they knew. There! Harry shouted, making Ron and Hedwig jump. Straight ahead! Silhouetted on the dark horizon, high above the cliff over the lake, stood the many turrets and towers of voice... Silhouetted on the dark horizon, high on the lake. Oh boy. Oh boy, we've had a moment. 
silhouetted on the dark horizon, high on the cliff over the lake, stood the many turrets and towers of Hogwarts Castle. But the car had begun to shudder, and it was losing speed. Come on, said Ron cajolingly, giving the steering wheel a little shake. Nearly there, come on. The engine groaned. Narrow jets of steam were issuing from under the hood. Harry found himself gripping the edges of his seat very hard as they flew toward the lake. The car gave a nasty wobble. Glancing out of his window, Harry saw the smooth, black, glassy surface of the water a mile below. Ron's knuckles were white on the steering wheel. The car wobbled again. Come on, Ron muttered. They were over the lake. The castle was right ahead. Ron put his foot down. There was a loud clank, a sputter, and the engine died completely. Uh-oh, said Ron into the silence. The nose of the car dropped. They were falling, gathering speed, heading straight for the solid castle wall. No! Ron yelled, swinging the steering wheel around. They missed the dark stone wall by inches as the car turned in a giant arc, soaring over the dark greenhouses and the vegetable patch, and out over the black lawns, losing altitude all the time. Ron let go of the steering wheel completely and pulled his hand out of his back pocket. Stop! Stop! he yelled, whacking the dashboard and the windshield with his wand. They were still plummeting, the ground flying up toward them. Watch out for that tree! Harry bellowed, lunging for the steering wheel, but too late. <laughs> Crunch. With an ear-splitting bang of metal on wood, it hit the thick tree and dropped to the ground with a heavy jolt. Steam was billowing from under the crumpled hood. Hedwig was shrieking in terror. A golf-ball-sized lump was throbbing on Harry's head where he had hit the windshield. And to his right, Ron let out a low, despairing groan. You all right? Harry said urgently. Oh, my wand, said Ron in a shaky voice. Look at my wand. It had snapped, almost in two. The tip was dangling limply on by a few splinters. Harry opened his mouth to say he was sure they'd be able to mend it up at the school, but he never even got started. At that very moment, something hit the side of the car with the force of a charging bull, sending him lurching sideways into Ron, just as an equally heavy blow, blow hit the roof. What's happened? Ron gasped, staring through the windshield, and Harry looked around just in time to see a branch as thick as a python smash into it. The tree they had hit was attacking them, the trunk was bent almost double, and its gnarling brows were pummeling every inch of the car it could reach. Ah! said Ron, as another twisted limb punched a large dent into his door. The windshield was now trembling under the hail of blows from knuckle-like twigs, and a branch as thick as a battering ram was pounding furiously on the roof, which seemed to be caving. Run for it! Ron shouted, throwing his full weight against his door, but the second he had done so, he was knocked backward into Harry's lap by a vicious uppercut from another branch. We're done for, he moaned as the ceiling sagged, but suddenly the floor of the car was vibrating. The engine had restarted. Reverse, Harry shouted, and the car shot backward. The tree was still trying to hit them. They could hear its roots creaking as it almost ripped itself up, lashing out at them as they sped out of reach. That, panted Ron, was close. Oh, well done, car. The car, however, had reached the end of its tether. With two sharp clunks, the doors flew open and Harry felt his seat tip sideways. Next thing he knew, he was 
sprawled on the damp ground. Loud thuds told him that the car was ejecting their luggage from the trunk. Edwig's cage flew through the air and burst open. He rose out of it with an angry screech and sped off toward the castle without a backward look. Then, dented, scratched, and steaming, the car rumbled off into the darkness, its rear headlights blazing angrily. Come back! Ron yelled after it, brandishing his broken wand. That'll kill me! But the car disappeared from view with one last snort from its exhaust. Can you believe our luck? said Ron miserably, bending down to pick up Scabbers. Of all the trees we could have hit, we had to hit the one that hits back. He glanced over his shoulder at the ancient tree, which was still flailing its branches threateningly. Come on, said Harry wearily. Better get up to the school. It wasn't at all the triumphant arrival they had pictured. Stiff, cold, and bruised, they seized the ends of their trunks and began dragging them up the grassy slope toward the great oak front doors. I think the feast's already started, said Ron, dropping his trunk at the foot of the stone steps in front and crossing quietly to look through the window. Hey, Harry, come and look, it's the Sultan. Harry hurried over, and together he and Ron peered into the great hall. Innumerable candles were hovering in midair over four long, crowded tables, making the golden plates and goblets sparkle. Overhead, a bewitched ceiling, which always mirrored the sky outside, sparkled with stars. Through the forest of pointed black Hogwarts hats, Harry saw a long line of scared-looking first-years filing into the hall. Ginny was among them, easily visible because of her visid, vivid Weasley hair. Meanwhile, Professor McGonagall, a bespectacled witch with her hair in a tight bun, was placing the famous Hogwarts sorting hat on a stool before the newcomers. Every year, this aged old hat, patched, frayed, and dirty, sorted new students into the four Hogwarts houses, Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin. Harry well remembered putting it on, exactly one year ago, and waiting, petrified, for its decision as it muttered aloud in his ear. For a few horrible seconds he had feared that the hat was going to put him in Slytherin, a house that had turned out more dark witches and wizards than any other. But he had ended up in Gryffindor, along with Ron, Hermione, and the rest of the Weasleys. Last term, Harry and Ron had helped Gryffindor win the house championship, beating Slytherin for the first time in seven years. A very small, mousy-haired boy had been called forward to place the hat on his head. Harry's eyes wandered past him to where Professor Dumbledore, the headmaster, sat waiting with the sorting hat. Sat watching the sorting hat from the staff table, his long silver beard and half-moon glasses shining brightly in the candlelight. Several seats along, Harry saw Gilderoy Lockhart, dressed in robes of aquamarine. And there at the end was Hagrid, huge and hairy, drinking deeply from his goblet. Hang on, Harry muttered to Ron. There's an empty chair at the staff table. Where's Snape? Professor Severus Snape was watching Harry's least favorite teacher. He also happened to be Snape's least favorite student. Cruel, sarcastic, and disliked by everybody except for students from his own house, Slytherin, Snape taught potions. Maybe he's ill, said Ron hopefully. Maybe he's left, said Harry. Suppose he missed the defense against the Dark Arts job again. Or he might have been sacked, 
said Ryan enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. I mean, everyone hates him. Or maybe... Harry spun around. There, his black robes rippling in a cold breeze, stood Severus Snape. He was a thin man with sallow skin, a hooked nose and greasy, shoulder-length black hair, and at this moment, he was smiling in a way that told Harry he and Ron were in very deep trouble. Follow me, said Snape. Not daring to even look at each other, Harry and Ron followed Snape up the steps into the vast, echoing entrance hall, which was lit with flaming torches. A delicious smell of food was wafting from the great hall, but Snape led them away from the warmth and light, down a narrow stone staircase that led into the dungeons. In, he said, opening a door halfway down the cold passageway and pointing. They entered Snape's office, shivering. The shadowy walls were lined with shelves of large glass jars, in which floated all manner of revolting things Harry didn't really want to know the name of at the moment. The fireplace was dark and empty. Snape closed the door and turned to look at them. So, he said softly, The train isn't good enough for the famous Harry Potter and his faithful sidekick Weasley. Wanted to arrive with a bang, did we, boys? No, sir, it was the barrier at King's Cross. It... Silence, said Snape coldly. What have you done with the car? Ron gulped. This wasn't the first time Snape had given Harry the impression of being able to read minds. But a moment later, he understood as Snape unrolled today's issue of the Evening Prophet. You were seen, he hissed, showing them the headline. Flying Ford Anglia mystifies muggles. He began to read aloud. Two muggles in London, convinced they saw an old car flying over the post office tower. At noon in Norfolk, Mrs. Hetty Bayliss, while standing out her washing, Mr. Angus Fleet of Peebles reported to police, six or seven muggles in all. I believe your father works in the misuse of muggle artifacts office, he said, looking up at Ryan and smiling still more nastily. Dear, dear. His own son. Harry felt as though he'd just been walloped in the stomach by one of the mad tree's larger branches. If anyone found out Mr. Weasley had bewitched the car, he hadn't thought of that. I noticed in my search of the park what considerable damage seems to have been done to a very large whomping willow. Very valuable whomping willow. Snape went on. That tree did more damage to us than we... Ron blurted out. Silence! Snapped Snape again. Most unfortunately, you're not in my house, and the decision to expel you does not rest with me. I shall go and fetch the people who do have that happy power. You will wait here. Harry and Ron stared at each other, white-faced. Harry didn't feel hungry anymore. He now felt extremely sick. He tried not to look at a large, slimy something, suspended in green liquid on a shelf behind Snape's desk. If Snape had gone to fetch Professor McGonagall, head of Gryffindor House, they were hardly any better off. She might be fairer than Snape, but she was still extremely strict. Ten minutes later, Snape returned, 
And sure enough, it was Professor McGonagall who accompanied him. Harry had seen Professor McGonagall angry on several occasions, but either he had forgotten just how thin her mouth could go, or he had never seen her this angry before. She raised her wand the moment, he ent moment she entered. Harry and Ron both flinched, but she merely pointed it at the empty fireplace, where flames suddenly erupted. Sit, she said, and they both backed into chairs by the fire. Explain, she said, her glasses glinting ominously. Ron launched into the story, starting with the barrier at the station, refusing to let them through. So we had no choice, Professor. We couldn't get on the train. Why didn't you send a letter by owl? I believe you had an owl, Professor McGonagall said coldly to Harry. Harry gaped at her. Now that she said it, that seemed the obvious thing to have done. I, I didn't think... Th that, said Professor McGonagall, is obvious. There was a knock on the door, and Snape, now looking happier than ever, opened it. There stood the headmaster. Harry's whole body went numb. Dumbledore was looking unusually grave. He stared down his very crooked nose at them. And Harry suddenly found himself wishing he and Ron were still being beaten up by the Whomping Willow. There was a long silence. Then Dumbledore said, Please explain why you did this. It would have been better if he had shouted. Harry hated the disappointment in his voice. For some reason, he was unable to look Dumbledore in the eyes, and spoke instead to his knees. He told Dumbledore everything except that Mr. Weasley had owned the bewitched car, making it sound as though he and Ron had happened to find a flying car parked outside the station. He knew Dumbledore would see through this at once, but Dumbledore asked no questions about the car. When Harry had finished, he merely continued to peer at them through his spectacles. We'll go and get our stuff, said Ron in a hopeless sort of voice. What are you talking about, Weasley? barked Professor McGonagall. Well, you're expelling us, aren't you? said Ron. Harry looked quickly at Dumbledore. Not today, Mr. Weasley, said Dumbledore. But I must impress upon both of you the seriousness of what you have done. I'll be writing to both of your families tonight. I must also warn you that if you do anything like this again, I will have no choice but to expel you. Snape looked as though Christmas had been cancelled. He cleared his throat and said, <coughs> Professor Dumbledore, these boys have flouted the decree for restriction of underage wizardry, caused serious damage to an old and valuable tree, surely acts of this nature. It will be for... It will be for Professor McGonagall to decide on these boys' punishments, Severus, said Dumbledore calmly. They are in her house, and therefore are her responsibility. He turned to Professor McGonagall. I must go back to the feast, Minerva. I've got to give out a few notices. Come, Severus, there's a delicious-looking custard tart I want to sample. Snape shot a look of pure venom at Harry and Ron as he allowed himself to be swept out of his office leaving them alone with Professor McGonagall, who was still eyeing them like a wrathful eagle. You'd better get along to the hospital wing, Weasley. You're bleeding. Not much, said Ron, hastily wiping the cut over his eye with his sleeve. 
Professor, I wanted to watch my sister being sorted. The sorting ceremony is over, said Professor McGonagall. Your sister is also in Gryffindor. Oh, good, said Ron. And speaking of Gryffindor, Professor McGonagall said sharply, but Harry cut in. Professor, when we took the car, term hadn't started yet, so, so Gryffindor shouldn't really have points taken from it. Got it? He finished, watching her anxiously. Professor McGonagall gave him a piercing look, but he was sure she had almost smiled. Her mouth looked less thin, anyway. It was better than Harry had expected. As for Dumbledore's writing to the Dursleys, that was nothing. You will eat in here and then go straight up to your dormitory, she said. I must also return to the feast. When the door had closed behind her, Harry let out a long, low whistle. I thought we had it, he said, grabbing a sandwich. So did I, said Ron, taking one too. Can you believe our luck, though, said Ron thickly through a mouthful of chicken and ham. Fred and George must have flown that car five or six times. No muggle ever saw them. He swallowed and took another huge bite. Why couldn't we get through the barrier? Harry shrugged. Just have to watch our step from now on, though, he said, taking a grateful swig of the pumpkin juice. I wish we could have gone up to the feast. She didn't want us showing off, said Ron sagely. Doesn't want people to think it's clever, arriving by a flying car. When they had eaten as many sandwiches as they could, the plate kept refilling itself. They rose and left the office, treading the familiar path to Gryffindor Tower. The castle was quiet. It seemed that the feast was over. They walked past muttering portraits and creaking suits of armor, and climbed a narrow flight of stone stairs until, at last, they reached the passage where the secret entrance to Gryffindor Tower was hidden, behind an oil painting of a very fat woman in a pink silk dress. Mm, password? she said as they approached. Um, said Harry. They didn't know the New Year's password, not having met a Gryffindor prefect yet, but help came almost immediately. They heard hurrying feet behind them and turned to see Hermione, dashing toward them. There you are! Where have you been? Where have you been? The most ridiculous rumors. Someone said you'd been expelled for crashing a flying car. Well, we haven't been expelled, Harry assured her. You're not telling me you did fly here, said Hermione, sounding almost as severe as Professor McGonagall. Skip the lecture, said Ron impatiently, and tell us the new password... It's Wattlebird, said Hermione impatiently, but that's not the point. Her words were cut short, however, as the portrait of the fat lady swung open, and there was a sudden storm of clapping. It looked as though the whole of Gryffindor House was still awake, packed into the circular common room, standing on the lopsided tables and squashy armchairs waiting for them to arrive. Arms reached through the portrait hole to pull Harry and Ron inside, leaving Hermione to scramble in after them. Brilliant! yelled Lee Jordan. Inspired! What an entrance! Flying a car right into the Whomping Willow? People will be talking about that one for years! Good for you, said a fifth year Harry had never spoken to. Someone was patting him on the back as though he'd just won a marathon. Fred and George pushed their way to the front of the crowd and said together, Why couldn't we have come in the car, eh? Ron was scarlet in the face, grinning embarrassedly, but Harry could see one person who didn't look happy at all. 
Percy was just visible over the heads of some excited first-years, and he seemed to be trying to get near enough to start telling them off. Harry nudged Ron in the ribs and nodded in Percy's direction. Harry got the point at once. Got to, uh, get back upstairs. Bit tired, he said, and the two of them started pushing their way toward the door on the other side of the room, which led up to a spiral staircase and to their dormitories. Night, Harry called back to Hermione, who was wearing a scowl just like Percy's. They managed to get to the other side of the common room, still having their backs slapped, and gained the peace of the staircase. They hurried up it, right to the top, and at last reached the door of their old dormitory, which now had a sign on it saying, Second Years. They entered the familiar circular room, with its five four-posters hung with red velvet and its high, narrow windows. Their trunks had been brought up for them and stood at the end of their beds. Ron grinned guiltily at Harry. I know I shouldn't have enjoyed that or anything, but, uh... The dormitory flew open. The dormitory door flew open, and in came the other second-year Gryffindor boys, Seamus Finnegan, Dean Thomas, and Neville Longbottom. Unbelievable! beamed Seamus. Cool, said Dean. A basic, said Neville, awestruck. Harry couldn't help it. He grinned, too. And that is the end of chapter five. Thank you all for joining me tonight. Um, and thank you for uh, fighting through this one. It was a little challenging. Um, had uh, I had some sort of pervasive throat issues all the way throughout, and we had some some technical issues. But if you stuck with it this far, I appreciate you. Appreciate you. Yes, I do. Thank you for watching. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And uh, I really appreciate you guys uh, hanging out with me as we go through Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I had a great time reading all the way through the first book, and I'm having a good time now. Even though we have a challenging stream. You know, that's the thing about this is, uh, as I was starting to realize that I might not have the perfect technological setup for this sort of thing, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, they're not all going to be great. I'm going to do it because it's difficult. And I've been getting better at it, for sure. But, um, yeah, this is definitely in a, a skill set that I'd like to be good at. You know? I'd like to be better than I currently am at this. Uh, this being live streaming. I'd like to... I'd like to be able to be a good live streamer. Hopefully much better if I had uh, actual decent Wi-Fi. If not now, you can do it later. Don't worry, you haven't missed your chance for comments, questions, or concerns. You can put them in the chat, or later on, I'll be posting a comment thread uh, on my Instagram. That's where I do all my updates, sidecar stories, all one word. We'll talk about it then. It was a good stream. Not the best stream, but a good stream. It can't all be the best. Um, yeah, so if you guys have anything you'd like to talk about, go ahead and put it into the chat. I would be delighted to discuss. I think, uh, you know, I, I obviously I have fun reading the first book, but the second book is where we start to get into sort of the really interesting world of Hogwarts. We, we know a lot about Hogwarts itself from book one, 
And then as we proceed, we get into book two and book three, we start to learn about sort of the wizarding world outside of Hogwarts. And that's some of my favorite stuff. I'm glad we're here. Thank you all so much for joining me. I think I'm going to shut down soon. And uh, yeah, you can join me on my Instagram or I will see you again next week. Same time, same place. I do love reading to you guys. Thank you to my super fans, as usual. I appreciate you a lot. And I'm looking forward to next week. I'm going to take little tests um, so that we don't have some of this uh, stoppy starting nonsense stuff. No sense in it. No sense at all. I don't care for it. Not my thing. By the way, I, I always glance down here. If you guys are wondering what I'm looking at, it's my own face. Um, I should just collapse that. No, because then I can see my own face there. All right, there we go. That's better. Now there's nothing else for me to look at other than straight at you guys. A little easier to focus. <laughs> but I can't see chat that way. It stinks. Rachel says, I really like the stream. Thank you, Rachel. All right, you guys. Have a wonderful night. You're wonderful people. And uh, good luck this week. You guys are heroes. Go to school. Learn what you can. If uh, it doesn't seem like it's worth it, remember it's going to pop up sometime. And uh, learning how to do things that are challenging is important all on its own. You know, uh, we, We're going to talk about this not yet. It's going to be for another couple of books, but Harry starts to get a sense of what he wants to do professionally. And he realizes that you know, he, he's got some classes he's going to have to take and have to do well in in order to do that. I think that's kind of what any profession's like. It doesn't matter how much you love, um, hmm, you know, some of these business classes are very significant. And until you're sure what you want to do, which some people don't figure out until they're in their 30s or 40s. Some huge names in acting and, and uh, such, like I want to be involved in, they didn't start until they were in their late 30s. J.K. Rowling wasn't uh, even writing until she was, you know, she, she was well out of school. She had, a, she had a kid. So, although it may feel like a waste of time, it's good to know a lot of this stuff. And it's even better to get good at learning things that you don't necessarily have a ton of interest in. So, thank you for listening to me uh, ramble on about school. I remember what it was like to be there. I miss it sometimes. I do. Something nice about uh, having new information all the time. I love to learn, though. I love it. So, I try to channel that into different things like nerd games, um, tabletop RPGs, Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of thing. I don't really play Dungeons and Dragons myself. I play a game called Dungeon World and Fiasco, and Stars Without Number. A lot of fun. Okay, thank you guys for watching. I'm going to shut it down now. I will see you guys later. Have a good night.